Welcome to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series. This podcast series is designed to help you explore the diversity and role of invertebrate life on this planet. You'll meet researchers from the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences and invertebrate curators from Australian museums. Today's episode is on spiders. Everyone, this is Professor Alistair Poor, who is the head of school for bees and um, an invertebrate champion. <laughs> if you have any questions on uh, on this week's content or in anything to do with invertebrates and the course at all, please jump in, put your videos on, um, put your hand up if you need to, or if you want to, type in the chat and I will um, I'll read the questions out. To get us started, does anyone have a question to start? I have a question. Great. Courtney, thanks. Is that Courtney? Yes. Yeah, Hi. fantastic. Um, so I was, a lot of the other um, lectures we've looked at, people have sort of focused on like the threats to the invertebrates that we've been speaking about, but I didn't really notice that in your lecture. And I was wondering if that was because there wasn't really any major threats to them. Um, maybe they've all got sort of stable populations or yeah, whether you just didn't include it. Uh, no, it's, I mean, I didn't inc include those sections explicitly in those lectures, but I think you can safely assume the threats to, to chelicerate populations, particularly, you know, spiders and mites and scorpions, are pretty similar to that, as you'd expect for other small arthropods. Uh, so if you've been, you know, had information around the declines of insect populations, or uh, the like, it, it's very much a, a similar story. Uh, so obviously habitat loss, um, increasing use of you know, pesticides in the environment. These are all things that you'd, you'd expect to affect um, spider populations in particular. Those lectures were focused on obviously understanding the morphology of the groups, understanding the, the ways in which they feed and reproduce, uh, but you could you could equally have you know, several lectures on, on spider conservation and as well. Um, it's, it's possibly a group that's a little bit harder to convince people of the value of, of conserving them. So I think that might be a good place to, to kick off the discussion. Uh, so as you know, spiders are not everyone's favourite <laughs> organism. Um, hopefully as a group of invertebrate nerds, you actually can see the, the wonder in this group. Um, but like I mentioned when we were talking about worms a few weeks back, one of the things we want you to get out of this sort of course is your ability to convince somebody else that these animals are worth conserving, are worth studying, are worth understanding. And so this, this presents a bit of a challenge for spiders because you've got people running around spending an enormous amount of effort trying to, you know, kill them in their houses or who could sort of come up with some nice ideas. What would be your first argument if you were trying to convince someone that uh, spiders are worth looking after? Would a good one just be because they're good at controlling other sort of pests? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the, the number of spiders that are dangerous is really, really tiny um, in proportion. Obviously, there are some pretty poisonous ones and, you know, they're ones to watch out for. But the you know vast majority of them are completely harmless uh, and they play a really important role as, as predators in, in most terrestrial systems. Um, so there's some quite easy arguments if you want to just say to someone, you know, spiders as a big group are worth looking after. These people are still obviously, you know, often irrationally afraid of spiders, and so it can be a challenge. Um, 
but it, like I think this is a good idea to keep right throughout this course is just to think how would you convince somebody that that group of organisms is worth worth looking after? Um, there are some groups in the chelicerates obviously that are a little are a bit more challenging for that. So I'm a big fan of invertebrates, but I'm not much of a fan of ticks. Um, so ticks, and that's probably a group where you really would struggle to convince people that these need preserving because they do carry some pretty nasty diseases and people, you know, they affect people's domestic dogs and you can get, you know, horrible bacterial infections. Um, so obviously there's some groups that are pretty, that are pretty challenging. Um, but I can see Jasmine's put a gorgeous little photo of a jumping spider on her profile there. That's a group of, of spiders that are absolutely wonderful and you could really, you know, convince a lot of people how cute and fabulous spiders are um, by looking at jumping spiders. Alistair, if there was one thing that the population, the public had to know about spiders, what what would you say is the one thing they absolutely had to know? The thing I, f- I find fascinating about spiders is the diversity of behaviours. So this is a, compared to some of the other groups you're going to cover in the course, this is a group that has very little variation in, in structure. You know, so they've got eight legs, they've got two chelicerae for feeding, they've got two pedipalps. When we go to crustaceans next week, there's just an absolute bewildering array of, of you know, body shapes and forms and structures. Spiders are actually, and scorpions, they're actually remarkably uniform. They all come in roughly the same uh, body plan. But what we see is this most fabulous diversity of behaviours, and that's what I think is so interesting. So you've got spiders that are active hunters, you've got spiders that are ambush hunters, you've got all the wonderful ways in which they use silk um, to trap their prey. And so I think it's an absolutely, you know, such a fascinating area to to look at invertebrate behaviour. And so quite often when people think animal behaviour, they're often, you know, thinking, you know, birds and, you know, mammals and, and often vertebrate things. Uh, but I'd like to convince you that the invertebrates we're studying in this course are, are absolutely brilliant subjects for uh, for understanding animal behaviour. So it's that diversity of of ways in which they catch their prey that I find particularly fascinating. Also keep in mind, amongst the spiders, there's actually very little diversity in what they eat as well. So this is a group almost exclusively that eats animal prey. And so you're dealing with a whole bunch of predators of roughly the same body shape, um, but this incredible diversity of methods for capturing prey. I think that's there's so many interesting examples of that. I've got, for example, those net casting spiders in my backyard, the ones that throw their silk and hold the silk on their legs and throw them out over the floor, over dressing insect prey. So you might think that's a sort of weird exotic example, but it's a suburban spider in Sydney. You can find those. Um, those of you in the northern suburbs might have come across um, funnel webs, which are obviously a pretty challenging and interesting spider. Um, but there's just, it's a group that you can't avoid. Every trip out into the bush, every trip into your garden, there are spiders. Um, Does the, the uniformity um, make the taxonomy easier or harder Is for identification? Oh, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm, no, I'm not a taxonomist of spiders, but... Um, they're like a lot of groups. There's of small, you know, arthropods. There's huge diversity described, um, but there's a very large diversity yet to be described. Um, so, uh, I don't think they're a particularly challenging group for for, for distinguishing species compared to perhaps some others. But um, but like 
many small invertebrates, particularly in biodiverse areas like Australia, there's just so many new ones out there yet to be yet to be described. Uh, have there been any new species described in the last um, last few years in in this particular area region? I know Thomas was telling us last week um, about some some new species, but has there been any interesting new discoveries of species of spiders? Oh, yeah, I'm not I'm not following those those sort of announcements, but I would just assume yes. Like there'd be scarcely an invertebrate group in Australia that's not sort of continually having new species described in in uh, this part of the world. Thomas might have a better sense of that. Um, if you want to go out and find new species and describe new stuff, spiders are one of the, the best groups to do it in at the moment in Australia. There's constantly new spiders being described from all around the country, not, not just in like obscure groups, but in groups like huge trapdoor spiders and, and some of the large tarantulas you get out in, out in the outback. There's constantly new ones of those being described. Uh, peacock spiders as well. There's probably been at, at least 10, if not more, uh, new peacock spiders that when you look at them, they just look so stunningly distinct. You think, how can someone possibly have you know, not seen that before? But because they're so tiny uh, and a lot of them are living in these remote areas. So certainly, even in your own backyard as well, there are, you, you've, probably, you've probably got at least one or two undescribed spider species living in your backyard uh, right now. So they're a, a quite a good field for you to, to find new stuff. There was a great there was a great news story a while back where someone photographed uh, some sort of jumping spider on their rubbish bin in the backyard, sent it into the museum in Victoria, and then the experts there had a good look at it and realised it was something new. Um, went back to that person's garden and was able actually able to refine that refine it and describe a, a new species. I'll try and find the link for you, but. Um, but that, yeah, just proves that point that there is undescribed things everywhere. Um, one of the hugely diverse groups of chelicerates uh, beyond the spiders are obviously the mites. Um, and mites are really tiny in the most, for the most part. And so that's your classic example of a really widely distributed, really abundant group uh, where there'll be just new species everywhere because it's, they're so... They're small, and unless you've had you know enormous amount of taxonomic effort in a given area, you just won't know the full diversity. Um, so remember, most invertebrates are very small. You know, you come across the bigger ones, but in amongst the chelicerates, there's just enormous diversity of mites that are really quite small. Nice. Um, Alex has written on here. When I looked up spider identification, all that came up was pest companies. Thomas, which is the best platform for um, following spider identification? Uh, there's there's two two generally. Um, you three, I should say. You've got you got Alistair's book that he's got there, which is a fantastic. This is nice for for major groups. It, it wouldn't get you down to species level, but if you want an in, a good introduction to Australia's spiders with lots and lots of wonderful photographs, uh, this book by Robert White, Field Guide to Spiders of Australia, is good. Is that backwards on your screen? Uh, no, that's the correct way. No, backwards to me. That's weird. Um, so that's a good, uh, if you just you want to get a good uh, overview of the diversity of spiders. And then if you want um, to get if you want to get to species, there's two kind of good platforms online. Yeah. One is the Australian Spider Identification page on Facebook, which has quite a lot of uh, really good experts on there, uh, including Robert Raven, who some of you might recognise the name of. He's uh, very 
uh, top spider taxonomist in Australia. And also iNaturalist. There are a lot of really good Australian uh, users that are quite well-versed in spiders on iNaturalist. Um, but you'll find that a lot of the time when you're identifying spiders, in a, you know, in some groups, you'll be able to get the species really easily. A lot of things like crab spiders and jumping spiders and huntsmen. But with a lot of other groups, particularly the really small ones, species ID can be really hard because a lot of spider groups need the genitals. I need you to look at the genitals and you, you look at all the keys, like the identification keys in the paper, and they're all genital based. So you need a microscope, a microscope pretty much to identify some groups. So depending on what you've got, it may or may, may, or may not be possible to ID just from your photos alone. Yeah, because I, I found one. Um, I found a small spider in my bathroom yesterday. And I was like, oh, look at this little fella. And I looked up close and I was like, I have never seen anything like that before. Um, so I took a bunch of photos and I put it in a little container with some, I gave it some food last night, a little anteater or something. And not an anteater, like a little, um, one of those little flying ants, um, almost look like moths. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's going okay. But I was trying to, um, I was trying to ID it on iNaturalist. Um, and I could kind of figure out maybe the family, um, but it's really hard to figure out the species. Uh, that's that's kind of like the the scourge of the the invertebrate ID world is that it can be really frustrating to identify things uh, because they're so small, as Alistair said, and because a lot of them the the feet. If you're looking at something like a bird, then the identifying features are often really easy and it's purely based on things like color or patterning and things like that. But then when you start dealing with a lot of inverts, suddenly it becomes things like how many segments, uh, how many you know, divisions are there on the second segment of the antennae or how many hairs are there on the, the femur of the third leg? So you start getting a lot of really obscure features which can make it tough. But I guess it also makes it more rewarding as well if you do manage to ID something. Yeah, for sure. I'm not, not really sure I can uh, look under a microscope and figure it out, but I can see at least from um, looking at it, there's like some distinctive features, which I can't actually find anywhere else. So I'll get you to have a look at it later, maybe. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Nice, Alex. That might be a good one to include in the um, in the invertebrate report paper, um, pages. Um, Alistair, for research on spiders within the school, for any of the students that are particularly interested in and what research options there there might be to get involved in? Yeah, so then so that's where we were hoping Mike could join us, but I, we he's in uh, Canada. So Mike Kasumovich, who's given a, a lecture on uh, sort of weird sexual behaviour in vertebrates, he has used spiders uh, for quite a bit of his animal behaviour work. Um, so he's used redback spiders for understanding the ways in which. Uh, males and females, you know, get together and there's really unusual uh, courtship behaviours and the costs to the different sexes. He's got a current PhD student, Caitlin Creek, who's working on, on funnel webs in, uh, in parts of Sydney. So she's running around uh, doing work on, on that group. Um, there's possibly some other examples, um, but Mike Yor is our most, the person who actually researches uh, spiders in most detail. Uh, and he does that, as I said, from a point of view of an evolutionary biologist, trying to understand uh, the evolution of sexual sexual reproduction and and courtship behaviours. Nice. Uh, we have a question here from Estella. 
Do scorpions have a smaller distribution compared to spiders and mites? If yes, what might be a reason for that? Yeah, good question. So they they do have a smaller sort of global distribution. Scorpions are more prominent in in tropical regions and in in the world's deserts. Uh, so they're not you don't see them in the much colder colder parts of the world. They're pretty much all over Australia. You can find them anywhere, um, but you wouldn't see them in sort of Arctic regions in the in far northern North America or Europe. Um, as to the reason for that, I'm not sure. Um, the biography of why scorpions are in those particular areas, I, I don't know. Mites are a different story. There are mites everywhere. There is there would not be an environment on Earth that doesn't experience that you know have mites. And this is not just terrestrial environments. So there are mites that are really common in freshwater habitats. There's even marine mites. Uh, and if you remember from the lectures, mites are also one of those groups that lives quite happily on other organisms. Um, so if you're small, you can basically look at a big plant or a big animal uh, and view that as habitat. Um, so there are mites um, in almost every conceivable habitat you can imagine. Uh, so very broad um, geographic distribution all around the world, but also very broad habitat um, you know, requirements. You can find them pretty much anywhere. don't know if anyone else has any ideas about why scorpions are not in the colder parts of the world. Uh, from Josh, spiders formerly were common in the ocean during the Devonian. How come they aren't very present in marine environments anymore? Great question. Yeah, so not not the spiders as you know them, but chelicerates definitely. Um, so this is a group that has a marine origin. Uh, so the of the big groups of um, chelicerates, we the one that still has some marine representatives are uh, the uh, the horseshoe crabs, so there's a whole subclass, Cypressura, which uh, included these great big sea scorpions, which were really abundant and huge predators, like really, really large invertebrates. Um, and that group is now really restricted down to just, I think there's only four species, maybe five of horseshoe crabs left in the world, one of which is the, this well-known one on the, which I can see in the background of Tracy's uh, picture there. So, yeah, on the... On the Atlantic coast of uh, of the US, you see these horseshoe crabs come up onto the beaches. Uh, so yes, a group that was widespread and abundant in the oceans in the past, you just see the relics of those in uh, in today's oceans. There's also the sea spiders, the pycnogonids, which are still uh, abundant in lots of parts of uh, the world's oceans. They live on often on other organisms, bryozoans and hydroids and and seaweeds. Uh, and and they get also get quite big. You can see deep sea ones that are kind of you know 40, 50 centimeters across, uh, but they're relatively obscure. Um, so we do still see chelicerates all through the oceans, uh, but the spiders that you're familiar with, the land spiders, are a radiation. You know, once the chelicerates had uh, colonized land, so it's not a group. It's not like there were spiders like the terrestrial ones that used to be in the ocean. What you've seen is the chelicerates once they colonized land huge evolutionary radiation of spiders, uh, mites, and and scorpions. Uh, but three of the major lineages of chelicerates remain in the ocean, and it's just the, the arachnids that have really taken off on land. Okay, Hannah's asked about paralysis ticks. Um, uh, yep, is, uh, oh, can a lot of ticks cause paralysis or just the one is um, from Hannah? I would... 
I'm not super confident on this, but I'd say yes. <laughs> I don't, I mean, we have locally in Australia, there's one that we call the paralysis tick because it, it has these um, nasty bacterial uh, components that can cause infection. Um, but I'm, I'm certain there'd be similar sort of arrangements in other ticks all around the world. Um, so as I said, ticks are, are a bit of a nasty group for the potential to pass on disease. Um, so you see there's tick-borne diseases in, in North America, in Europe, and in lots of places in the world. There's some really odd um, symptoms of those diseases as well. So one of the weird things about people that can, have had tick-borne diseases is that they can then become allergic to eating red meat, which I just find such a, such a weird symptom of, of having that bacterial disease. Uh, so lots of medical research obviously into tick-borne diseases. Um, and obviously some mites are also major, you know, pests of uh, agricultural systems, um, both animals and plants, and they can get, you know, do some nasty things to, to humans as well. Yeah, that allergy to red meat is crazy. It's so weird, isn't it? I, I don't, I mean, someone would have studied that and know the, know the reasoning for that, but it's a, uh, yeah. it's a strange sort of symptom of, of having had that, that disease. Yeah. Um, I popped a couple of links in the chat um, if anyone's interested in some essays that have been written about horseshoe crabs, just thinking about the essays coming up next week. Is anyone writing an essay um, about the group this week, as spiders or anything like that? Is that going to pop up in um, in your science communication essays? So, yeah, I think I might be adding some spiders in my uh, essay since I'm writing about invertebrates in the media and which ones seems to have the charisma to really get the likes, like the cephalopods kind of have this sort of reputation of being quite well-liked, while other ones seems to be either ignored, like most nematodes, like platyhelminthes, worms, in this whatnot, this doesn't really appear on the on the media, or are relatively ostracized, like the what we talked about today, spiders and scorpions, mites and ticks. So, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to think writing. of... Yeah, it's hard to think of a Netflix uh, documentary on, you know, my tick teacher. <laughs> yes, my octopus teacher is definitely it, was a big hit. Yeah. There's a niche, <laughs> opening, for, niche opening for someone. <laughs> There's going to be somewhere, some, someone's going to yeah. be enjoying something like that. But that'd be interesting. The reason that we have that sort of focus on, I think it's really interesting to look at how invertebrates are portrayed in the media because it tells you, they're often silly stories. You know, like you'll get some sort of horror story of someone who finds spiders in their, you know, fruit basket or whatever. Um, but there's usually something quite informative behind that story. So, you know, you have to, when you see those stories, you think, okay, why is it of human interest? You know, what is it about that group that makes, you know, the news pay attention? So is it in, in this case for spiders, it's quite often, you know, because it links into people's fear of poisonous animals. It links into the, you know, you know, the unease about uh, things that are black and hairy and scuttle around in the corners. Um, so it's a genuine fear that people have for spiders. But then the question becomes, why is that? What is the, you know, the reasoning behind that? And it's not, in many cases, it is kind of irrational, but it's also, it's not a surprise when this is one of the groups that can really, really hurt us. Um, so again, there's, so there's biology behind all of those human reactions. And then there's interesting biology in why you know, we're attracted to certain sorts of groups, not others. So the jumping spider, I can still see J Jasmine's little picture there. 
you know, they're pretty gorgeous because they've got front-facing eyes. You know, so we, we're attracted to animals that have got big baby puppy-like eyes that look at us. Um, so if it's a black, black sort of, you know, hairy spider with, with eyes that aren't really distinct, it's way less appealing to us. Um, so the reason that people like a lot of, you know, puppy pictures on the web or what, or, you know, relates to the ways in which we interact with animals more generally. Uh, so, so as I said, jumping spiders are a fantastic model to get people interested in spiders because they've got that sort of cute look with the big eyes. Um, they're really colourful. They're not dangerous. They've got, you know, some absolutely wonderful behaviours. Um, so I'm fairly convinced that if the only spiders we had were jumping spiders, there would be no human-based fear of spiders. Like it just wouldn't exist. You'd think, oh, this is the most fantastic little thing in our gardens. Um, so when you see those weird stories about, you know, horror, shock horror sort of stories about scary invertebrates, sort of step back and think, why is that? Why are people reacting in that way? Why do people love octopus and, and um, cuttlefish and, and not love something else? Uh, and it's often, you know, relates to those sort of ideas about why we like certain animals over others. I mean, actually, I, watching the Australian media over the last few years, I think the positive stories around spiders, it, it's nearly all around the peacock spiders, you know, which really sort of where it seemed like a bit of a game changer in terms of getting attention to a group of animals that were, you know, normally ignored. Um, and it's, you know, they're colourful, they've got wonderful behaviour, they do all sorts of funky things. Um, there's the most fabulous, I don't know if anyone's seen that, um, video where they got they animated the spiders to be playing musical instruments and like they're just you know they're so cool um so that but there's probably not there's not many other examples in this group of that sort of positive relationship between humans and calicerates scorpions have got that whole sort of dark and dangerous reputation when you see scorpion imagery it's nearly all it's like death metal stuff you know it's you see it on motorbike jackets and you know and horror films. It's it's never it's never um you know cute cuddly stuff. Um, mites and ticks be just completely ignored by the you know by the public except for when they do nasty things. Um, so across these calicerates, the really the only sort of positive bits that I can see would be some elements of spiders that are that are colourful and cute. They don't like people don't like ogre face spiders since their eyes are really big. I found one in the garden the other day. I showed it to my siblings. They loved it. Yeah, so that's another name for the the net casting spiders, and they they also have these big eyes right at the front um, because they're they're visual hunters. You know, they're watching for prey to then cast that net over, as opposed to those sort of passive hunters that just or passive spiders that just sit there on their webs. Um, so hopefully I made the point in the lectures that the morphology and the way in which they use their senses in the spiders is very closely linked to the types of hunters they are. Um, so the, the active hunters, the ones that don't use webs, they've got good eyesight, they've got eyes at the front of the head, they're highly mobile, they're fast, um, and contrasts quite strongly in the way in, um, to the ones that sort of sit there on the webs. Jasmine's asking, she said, a bit of an odd question, but I was wondering whether there have been any cases of allergies to spiderwebs. Spiderwebs, yeah, good question. Not that I've heard. I think, I don't think silk is a particularly uh, sort of bioreactive, you know, substance. Um, yeah, not, not that I've heard, Jasmine. Oh, sorry, who asked that? Yes, Jasmine. Yeah. Mm. 
Um, that silk is, of course, one of the other most fabulous things about this group of invertebrates. Um, so the, the diversity of ways in which silk is used by spiders is really quite stunning. Um, so they're, they're not the only invertebrates that produce silk. Um, so there's a whole collection of various sorts of insects make silk in tubes or use silk in a few different ways, things like caddisflies or this group called web spinners. Um, there's even crustaceans that use silk. Um, so some of the small crustaceans that I've studied actually make little nests in amongst the seaweed by gluing uh, kelp together with silk. Mm -hmm. um, but the spiders have taken, you know, the production and use of silk to a whole nother level. And it's really, again, that diversity of behaviours to create all the webs and all the structures and the different types of webs, um, I think is absolutely fantastic amongst the spiders. The, there's a question about, yeah, question about, not question, more comment from Hannah that's a really nice example of people looking to bioengineer silk itself because um, it's, it's particularly strong for its, you know, weight and it can be made into all sorts of things. So this, you know, true silk for, for growing up, for um, the people using fabrics, that's still collected from silk worms, which are, are a moth larva. But the spider, people are trying to, you know, see if they can work out ways to make spider silk through other means. Yes, there was, there was an example where people genetically engineered goats to produce their milk. Uh, so then they could collect the silk out of the milk. Very, very strange. But, you know, just that discussion raised it, made me remember that. Um, but obviously, if, if you're keen on using silk as a material, the challenge is getting enough of it. Um, you know, so the spiders are small. Uh, in order to collect enough to even study, you often you know need to harvest quite a lot. Um, so if the people are keen on using it as some sort of material to make you know everything from clothes to bulletproof vests or whatever, they're going to have to come up with a mechanism to create it at scale, and it's going to be have to be some sort of bioengineering solution. Nice. That's a really interesting application. <laughs> Goats. <laughs> yeah, I just remembered there was some weird connection between spider silk and goats, and there it is. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. We actually, there's another one. We also have a, there's a researcher in the school, Sean Blamiris, who is actually expert in the biomechanics of silk. Um, so he's doing a whole series of experiments with milk, oh, sorry, with, with spider <laughs> silk. Um, I have a question about the, um, Horseshoe crabs. I know that you mentioned in the lecture that um, there were like community groups that were going out and flipping them over when they flipped. Can they not flip over themselves? That sort of seems like a bad adaptation to have. <laughs> yeah, this is why they're not. They're why they've mostly gone extinct, isn't it? Um, no, I think I think they just there was a recognition that those populations were under threat from you know, in the past harvesting for the medical reasons, uh, fishing as well, like they're actually collected for consumption in some areas. Um, so I think it was a nice sort of community project to raise awareness about the conservation of the group. If they noticed one that was, you know, up high up on the beach struggling, they could sort of flip them back over and, and put them back. They would be able to do that, I think, in, in water, but I suspect that would struggle if they're up on, on dry sand. Um, but it does seem a yeah, it seems a weird. Uh, it's like a turtle on the back on their back, isn't it? Not not great. But they don't expect they shouldn't expect to be upside down. Um, but maybe they get flipped over by a bird or something. Nice question. 
Um, so last chance for, for questions, anyone? Um, yeah, in the lecture, you said that there's concerns in Australia about like certain mites potentially getting in. Um, are there examples where mites have been like well-managed um, like as an invasive species, like any biocontrols that work? Yeah, so peop- so they can, I think that was in reference to a thing called the Varroa mite, which is a pest of honeybee populations. So Australia's got one of the few uh, bee and honey industries that is not yet affected by that mite. Um, so we're fortunate, obviously, being an island and having having pretty strong quarantine situations. But the the bee honey industry is massively concerned about having that mite come into the country. I don't know if there are examples around the world where those problems have been effectively managed. Um, you could probably do it. I mean. It becomes like, a, I mean, bee harvesting is, you know, is agriculture, so they could come into their hives and they could treat them with with compounds to to uh, to get rid of the mites. The other problem mites in agriculture, obviously, the ones that occur on plants, and so there there are enormous lots of effort in in controlling, you know, herbivorous mites, in spider mites, in gardens, and all the mites you get in in agricultural crops, and that's a mixture of chemistry. Um, but there there are some nice biological control examples as well where uh, my favourite one is the fact that you can simply go and buy predatory mites off the shelf. You can buy a big tub of predatory mites and scatter them around your orchard to control um, herbivorous mites. And so that's a nice example of biological control where you don't have to use chemicals. Um, people also probably look at companion planting uh, to try and promote uh, predatory insects and wasps and things that could uh, parasitize the, the mites as a way of biological control. The other thing, the other way that, did I talk in the lecture about Demacia, the structures that plants produce? I'm not sure I did. So plants are actually have come up with their own clever solutions for, for trying to limit the damage that uh, herbivorous mites do. And there's enormous diversity of plants around the world that produce structures called Demacia, which are like little extra hidey holes on their leaves, little holes, little fluffy structures. Uh, and then in those little tiny little structures, you get, uh, it promotes the, the abundance of small predators, which can then uh, can then uh, help control the, the herbivores on their leaf surfaces. So this is like, you know, micro scale, you know, predator-prey interactions. Uh, but plants have had, you know, millions and millions of years of being faced with getting munched by, by pest mite species. Uh, and it's a really nice example of a mutualism where they're creating habitats for predators, which then control the um, control the mites. So this is not not the biological control you're talking about, you know, run by humans, but it's a, an example of uh, you know plants trying to control their predators by manipulating you know predators of their pests. Uh, lots and lots of plants have independently evolved special structures to try and increase the abundance of predators on their leaf surfaces. So there's a common, there's a relatively common garden plant around Sydney called Caprosma. It's a New Zealand plant that's got big round leaves. And if you grab one of those leaves and have a look at it, you can see these little holes at the base of the veins, which are a nice example of these Demacia. Fantastic. Um, Alistair, one last question from me. Any tips on what in particular the students should 
should delve into and study coming up to the end of the end of the course and the exams at the end? Oh, we're getting that close. So obviously, I appreciate you know the diversity of invertebrates is is insane. It's it is challenging to get your head around the full range of of you know animal groups that we're attempting to show to you across the course. What we want to get across to you, obviously, is obviously that first taste of you know the major groups. Um, so it'd be a shame in a way if you spent four weeks trying to identify one spider um, but forgot that corals exist. Or, you know, so keep sort of at some point sort of step back and make sure you've got a good understanding of the major groups and that level of diversity. Um, obviously, if you're super keen on spiders or you're super keen on corals, you, you'll have opportunities later on to really delve into those. Um, but get a sense of that big picture of animal evolution that we're trying to cover with the major groups. Um, so that's the diversity bit. Um, and then for any given group, just return to that, those sort of questions of how do they feed? You know, how do they, you know, get their nutrition? Because then we get, then we start to see all those wonderful, you know, behaviors and diversity of forms of are they filter feeders? Are they deposit feeders? Are they predators? Are they parasites? And start to look for common elements. So you've been exposed to, for example, parasites in all sorts of different groups. Start to think about what is similar about the ones that are parasitic if you're a worm or if you're a mite or if you're next week, you know, some of the parasitic copepods. So try to see similarities in modes of behaviour or modes of food, lots of different groups. Obviously, the diversity bits tied in with morphology because we obviously want to understand the basic structures of these animals. Uh, and then finally, it's of great interest, obviously, to understand how they reproduce. So I think sort of structure your thinking around diversity, morphology, feeding, reproduction. And if you know a little bit about each of those for each of the major groups, then you've got a really nice survey of, of animal diversity, both from a, you know evolutionary point of view, but also a functional point of view, how they actually live in the world. Uh, and then, then the other, the sort of final bit that I'd add is the bit that we're sort of pushing all the way along, which is just, you know, if you had to convince one of your friends who hates biology that it's worth studying organism X, Y, and Z, store up those little stories. You know, just keep those examples of why these things are, are interesting, why they're valuable to human populations, why we should spend any time studying them. And this, we, you know. We obviously love them and we study them for a living, but we still have to rationalise to ourselves, you know, why would I bother spending all this you know, time and money on a particular group of critters? You know, when we go apply for research grants or when we write papers, we, we go through that justification process all the time. You know, so Tracy studies corals because she loves corals, but it's also, you know, it's an important habitat for so many things. It's threatened by global warming. And you, you have all these examples ready to go as to why we do this. And I think that's really important for any, any of the groups you study. Thank you for listening to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series podcast. For any more information regarding the content in this course, please email me at tracy.ainsworth at unsw.edu.au.